What's up, everybody? Nick Holderbaum here. Welcome to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. Go to primelosophy.com to maximize your aliveness. I'm really excited about today's guest, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. He is the author of several books, including The Five Levels of Attachment, which is my personal favorite, Living a Life of Awareness, The Mastery of Self, and the Don Miguel Ruiz Little Book of Wisdom. He also co-authored the book, The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships. So thanks for being here. I hope you enjoy this episode with Don Miguel. All right, today I'm speaking with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. Miguel, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this interview for some time now. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. You. So I thought we could start with talking about your apprenticeship with your father, Don Miguel Ruiz, that lasted what, 11 years, and then when you reached your mid-20s, your father intensified your training, and at the apex of this powerful journey, he told you, find your way out, go home, and master death by becoming alive. What do you think he meant by that? Well, first, it was my, it was my grandmother who was 10 or 11 years. That was the apprenticeship. She was the, she's the head. When people say that I'm following in my father's footsteps, to a certain degree, I have to correct them. It's my grandma. My grandmother, Maris Sarita, she is the one who decided to share the tradition outside the family. So you can say my father, myself, and my brother, we all continue in her journey, what she started. And the apprenticeship I had that lasted 10 to 11 years was with my grandmother, Sarita. And uh, my father still still teaches me some. I'm still a current active apprentice of my father's. <laughs> but... Uh, um, but when he uh, says, go home, conquer death by becoming alive, is to face the biggest fears, which is not death. Death is not the biggest fear people have. It's living, make, being, being able to make a choice, trusting their yes and their no, trusting themselves and letting go of the conditions. Because the one thing that brings us to a halt is the fear of failure, which is, you could say that a punishment we have in our domestication is... If you fail, you're a loser. You're not accepted. You're not lovable. And how are you going to enjoy life? And how are you going to enjoy, how are you going to love yourself, accept yourself if you don't live up to that expectation? So you can say that that expression was to lose, undomesticate myself or let go of those beliefs, start seeing and learning how to love myself unconditionally, which is to no longer be afraid of failure, to enjoy the journey that is life. It's ups, the ups and downs. To not be afraid of being me, to not be afraid to accept myself for who I am. And of course, at first that takes a little practice, but in learning to live, to enjoy life, is to be able to enjoy the whole of you, all of it. You know, the good, the bad, the right, the, and, and all that good stuff. It's everything in between, the whole journey. What do you think so, was the most difficult challenge for you there? I didn't respond much. I, at that point, I was in such a happy place. I was in a very good place in my life that, you know, it was just a beautiful expression, you know, very inspiring. Uh, it didn't really hit me until I got home, you know, with my everyday life, my, my ability to recreate everything, to let go of all those things. And then I put it into practice. I began to live my life, and the very first things that you begin to deal with is your heartbreaks. So all those Im all that imagery that you thought you were, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist at all. So it's, it's you start facing all your heartbreaks at the same time, and then from there you slowly get up and rebuild it all again. Was this sort of like a rite of passage for you? To a certain way, yeah, you can say it is, but to be honest with you, it's true for everyone. We all go through this. What were the challenges that you had already been through? There was so much heartbreak already indebted? Well, it's like anything, you know, it's like the, the heartbreak of first love and love lost, you know, at the, because when my father said this to me, uh, I was, it was 2000, I was about 24, 25 years old. At that point, there's enough, you know, life experiences to impact you, of course, um, I faced academic stuff, but mostly it was my relationships and things like that. So it was really just about becoming more mentally resilient and loving yourself. You can say it's the, let me put it to you this way. As a parent myself now, one of the things that we don't tell people who don't have kids, especially our kids, is that we parents have no idea what we're doing. We're doing the best with what we've got. Because as soon as you get used to being the parent of a one-year-old, they turn two. 
And as soon as it, you get used to being the parent of a two-year-old, they turn four, they turn eight, they turn 12. You're constantly reinventing what you know about parenting because the child you're parenting is changing in front of you. Mm-hmm. Of course, when you reached puberty or those teenage years, all of a sudden you, you, you experience a whole new form of anxiety that you've never experienced. What world are they going to go into? You know, because when they're young, you know, it's elementary, it's all that stuff, that image of of, of kids. You just got to keep them alive, right? Yeah. But as they enter their teenage years, it's like you start seeing, all right, in a few years, they're going to be out there in the world. What did I bring them into? And then you have that anxiety. So last year, I had to deal with that anxiety myself, my son being autistic and my daughter not being one. But they all both of them face their own unique hurdles in life. And I saw a movie called Black Panther, where the father uh, tells the Black Panther when he goes into the underworld and sees his passed away father. And it was, uh, the job of a, of a parent is to prepare their children for their own death, which to me means the job of a parent is to prepare our children to survive without us. And now we're teaching that. That's the gig. That's the that's the job we have as parents. So you can say that that line that my father shared with me, that that advice, that uh, teaching was, Miguel, this is where me as a parent stops, and this is you as your uh, individual. So you're going to sustain yourself. This is where you do the work that will allow you to survive without me. So that now that is your number one goal is to help prepare your children to cope with death in the, like an appropriate manner and not fear death. It's something I want to create for my children to teach them because it's their life. You know, and they're the ones going through this. I can be their helicopter parent and, and try to evade every experience they've had, but it's their life. It's their journey. My son, he's going to be the one who decides whether autism is going to be his parasite or his ally. You know, if if he chooses that his autism is his ally, my gosh, the things that he will create will be phenomenal. But if he lets the uh, the stigma and the stereotype and whatever judgment there is against the term autism, then it does become its parasite. But that is true for every person, you know, be a man, be a woman, be the economic status you're in. So you can say that with my kids, they are the people who I'm invested in because I love them that much. They're my children. And what makes us a parent is that willingness to engage that child. And in my case, they're no longer children. They're young. You know, they're, they're in their, that beginning stages of developing their, their ability. But I also have my, also my, my commitments and my love for my wife. You know, she and I, in taking care of each other, I also have my commitments with my parents and helping them as they learn to face what life is past 65 and they're entering in those golden years and like <laughs> helping them uh, get used to their new stage because they're going through a different form of purity themselves. My kids are going through one form of purity. My parents are going through a different one. You know, And then you have my brothers, you have my friends, you have everyone in life. And then last but not least, sometimes actually first is me. Uh, all the journeys I'm going, all the cha- changes, it's always constantly evolving. It's like having a bunch of dishes out, you know, that, that imagery of the of the, uh, the the rotating dishes and those sticks, and you have several of them in the air, and somehow you manage all of them, and you realize that none of them are really your responsibility, but you're here because you want to help. Mm-hmm. At that point, it's, it's not necessarily goal number one. There's no priorities. It's basically what's presented to yourself in front of you, that's the one you you deal with and dress with. That's how it feels as a parent, as a husband, as a son, as a human being that I am. Mm -hmm. Life is constantly throwing and giving me opportunities to get to know myself by surviving hurdles, dealing with problems, learning to have patience, and having confidence in myself to make the choices. And to respect myself, to experience the consequences of those choices. That's, yeah, you have a very unique perspective. All is change, all is flux. As long as you're present and you're dealing with the task at hand, it seems like you can avoid a lot of the stress. Well, the stress is always, always going to be there. The stress is, is part of the, this instrument that allows us 
to handle things. Stress is just the way that we focus our intention. Sometimes, you know, that stress is high when you realize that the consequence is something that you don't want to experience. So you, there's a certain level of that. But the stress is there to help. You know, if if you get taken away by stress, then yes, then then it really gets a hold of you and it's really hard for the blood to flow through your muscles because all your muscles are so tense. But to learn to manage your body, to learn to take care of your body, you know, not necessarily massages, but just doing practice of yoga, of running or taking the time to rest allows the muscles to allow that blood to flow through. Because if the blood, the muscles are tense, then blood doesn't flow and the, and the body doesn't recover. So it's a, a finding that balance, finding the balance that allows you to nurture your body, to let it continue to find that stress that allows you to f- flow through things, to take care of things, and at the same time, help it relax when the time comes to relax. It's, it's, it's this n- nice balance of it all. Mm-hmm. So f- from my point of view, stress is, a, is an ally that can easily become your tyrant if you solely rely on it. But if you find the balance of using stress with healing, or you can say relaxation in this case, relaxation in this conversation as the equivalent of healing, finding that balance is what's going to get you through. So I, for example, as a runner, if I constantly run, 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 and, 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 and do all the cardio and um, multi-exercise um uh, exercise and, and, and muscle training but I never relax my body's gonna break down even though I'm working working it even though I'm I'm nurturing it if I don't give it time to recover the body will break down so but that stress of doing the work of running those miles of r- ramping up the mileage in my case right now I'm at 30 miles going up, I'm pushing it up to 40 the next stage because I'm running a full marathon by December. That's exciting. It's, it's, it's this whole balance of back and forth, back and forth, and knowing what to do. So that's, that's the thing with life. Life will give me opportunities to deal with the problems at hand. At the same time, life will also give me the opportunity to heal it. And it's all about being present to know when is when and not be afraid of to make a schedule or a routine that's going to help with that. Going back to talking about the apprenticeship that you had with your grandmother, what exactly does that mean as far as apprenticeship? Because, you know, I was close with my grandma. We had a great relationship. I learned a lot from her. But what do you mean when you say apprenticeship? Well, it's the years that she was actively teaching me my family tradition. So you can say that my grandmother didn't speak Span- uh, English. She only spoke Spanish. So it was my job to translate for her for all those years and that's the way by repetition like re- listening and repeating what she was saying that I began to learn a lot of the tradition you know especially as she engaged uh, her patients uh, or she gave a sermon or a lecture or an interview I basically helped her and, and uh, in return she was teaching me how to meditate in that way because at first I would try to listen to her and I would try to say and repeat it perfectly but then I was always having problems because, you know, she would go fast and the queue of things I had to translate get building, building, building to a certain point I had to make the leap and let go of a lot of things I didn't translate because I would lose her and I didn't hear. So as time progressed, my grandma says, do you know why you were having problems uh, translating for me? And I said, Mom, grandma, you're, you're going too fast. and I'm, I can't keep up. I need to say it perfect. Then she's asked me, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? Which at the age of 14, I had no idea what that meant, but as time progressed, I do. But basically she says, what happens, Miguel, is that event, what you're pay- listening to is that voice inside your head that's trying to make it all perfect. But when, when that happens, you're no longer listening to me. And when you no longer listen to me, there's no way you can translate. Make the voice that's inside your mind my voice and when you open your mouth to say what i'm saying let it be in english because you already know this language have the confidence in yourself so little by little i had to learn how to listen to her so i had to first conquer my uh, temp- the temptation to uh, 
for distractions. So I first closed my eyes. And as I mastered that, I learned not to get distracted by my, my own body because if I start scratching an itch or something like that, I lose her. Or giving attention to sounds around the room. You know, like if, if something were to fall across the hallway there, then I would open my eyes. And if I did that, I, I lose her. So I learned not to stray from the focal point of my attention, which is my grandmother's voice. And little by little, I even had to learn not to be distracted by my own thoughts. Because if, if I had a thought and I gave, gave in to that thought, I would lose her. I got to the point where I was able to translate to her word by word. As soon as she said a, a few letters of a word, I translated them. And we were able to talk simultaneously. That was when I was like in my early 20s there, when I reached that point, or late teens. But uh, that's how she taught me how to meditate, how to focus my attention. And that's basically the essence of the, t the teachings. What you focus your attention to, that's what's going to dominate your life. So for me, that was the apprenticeship I had with my grandmother, who was the spiritual aunt. Even though she passed away 11 years ago, she's still the, 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 the spiritual leader of this family. Yeah, that's cool. It sounds like an active form of meditation. Sounds really yeah. difficult too to practice. So what yeah. was your favorite prayer or lecture from your grandmother? <sighs> Gosh, there are many things. But what sticks the most is her faith. She used to say, it's not me who's doing it. My father is, we don't mean God, God is. She's just a channel. But <clears throat> what stuck to me about that is that she had complete confidence. There was no doubt in her mind. She completely engaged. And she created miracles. And actually, she, she passed away at the age of 98. And she was on her way to a hospital to help heal one of her patients when she had a stroke. And we can say that just like her father and her great-grandfather, sorry, her grandfather, they all passed away working. You know, that's that's apparently that's a family tradition too. But <clears throat> that's to me that was the essence of her teachings, faith. Faith not just in God and in life, but in yourself. Because if you have if you have doubt in yourself, that's gonna be the thing that makes you lose focus on life. It's when life begins to pass you by. But if you want to ride this ride, you have to be completely present at all times. It sounds like you and your, your family are living this life dedicated to contribution and passing yeah. on this knowledge. Where did this knowledge come from before your grandmother? Where did she learn from? Don Leonardo, her father, and then Don Ezequiel before him. And that's the thing, because of uh, oral tradition, we go, it's all based on memory. We don't know, at least I don't know the name of Don Ezequiel's father. I know that Don Ezequiel was born in 1832, 1834 in Mexico, in a little small town of Juanacatlan, Jalisco. But I'm only able to find my great-grandfather's Don Leonardo, uh, who was born in 1882, 83, something like that a few years after the little town began to keep records in the municipal building. Before that, everything's in the church, so you have to really go into it to find the names of the people before that. So the person who says that we are Toltec is my great-great-grandfather, Don Ezequiel Macias, who lived to be from uh, 116 years of age, according to uh, family folklore. Whoa. And his father was born in the New Spain. So from there... The Toltec tradition as a culture existed over 500 years ago, um, and it ended with, uh, with either with the expansion of the Aztec Empire or the expansion of the Spanish Empire, but it ceased to exist. So from there, it became an oral tradition that many families around Central America, Mexico, and, the, and South of the United States practice it in their own unique way. There are families out there that continue to practice it as it was over 500 years ago. And then there's families like mine that adapts it with every generation. Like my grandmother would say, if you practice the, the Toltec tradition the way I do or your father do, you're killing the tradition. Because life teaches you from the experience. That's who the real teacher is, life. So our tradition, I, I, there's a line it goes as far far back as 1883, by living memory, but with names. But obviously, we go further than that, and every generation will teach it in their own unique way. So tell me more about the Toltecs, and what does it mean to have a Toltec heart? 
I don't know what it means to have a Toltec heart. What it means, to, the word Toltec sim, is, means artist. If I translate the phrase, the Toltec art of transformation into 100% English, it means the artist path of transformation. So when I hear the word Toltec heart, I just hear the artist heart. That's what I hear. Not I don't hear the culture. I don't hear the history. I hear an artist that creates his own unique life. The canvas for our work of art is my life and the instruments, the pencils, the paintbrush, and all that kind of thing is my will, it's my body, it's my mind, it's this life that animates this whole body. So for me, a Toltec heart, that might be a, a nice little symbol to explain someone who is an artist, but in our point of view, every single individual in the world is an artist, from an actual artist that paints, illustrates, or takes photography to the artist of a doctor, the artist of a dentist, the artist of a lawyer, the artist of the person who cleans the cars, because it requires a certain craft to be able to clean a car perfectly or even do the work we do. It's it's a craft. <clears throat> so we're all creating the work of art we have. We're either creating the most perfect nightmare or the most harmonious dream. But we're all artists from that point of view. So it's like the unique expression of you as an individual. And the irony of that is that as as it describes the individual, it also describes the whole. Because everything is creating at the same time. Everything is manifesting. Not just human beings, but animals as well. Plants are. Life is. Planet is. The solar system is. The universe is constantly changing, constantly evolving. And perception keeps shifting. If you look at astrophysics... <clears throat> It'd be hard to even pinpoint the center of the universe because the perception changes with every different position you're in and everything moves kind of differently from different positions you're in. Earlier, you mentioned the question, are you using knowledge or is knowledge using you? Can you mm -hmm. go a little bit deeper on that? Well, sure. It was the, the question that my grandmother used all throughout our apprenticeship and she would change it, of course. She would also say, is the bottle drinking you or are you drinking the bottle? That's the one she used to use on me and the cousins when we were young, you know. But she would always change it around. And it's basically, to me, it, it represents the moment where are my beliefs controlling my actions or am I creating my beliefs? Knowing the difference is important. Because if the beliefs are controlling you, your belief system, your superstitions, your conditional love, and all that kind of stuff, then you're not living your life with free will. You're allowing something else to impact it, either another person, another so a society, our community, or the dream of the planet as we know it in our tradition. Your will, your yes and your no, is controlled by a belief, an idea, in this case, knowledge. If you're controlling knowledge, then you are aware that you are the source of knowledge. You are the one that creates the agreements that forms it, that shapes it, that gives it power, its meaning to be impeccable with the word. So knowing the difference is huge. Now, when I was young, I didn't know that. But as I began to do my journey, I can tell the difference between the two. And my instrument that allows me to, to know that is my emotions, my anger, my joy, my jealousy, my fear. They let me know when I'm attached to a belief or not, when knowledge controls me. Check your conditioning. So how can we go about exploring the ways in which we attach ourselves inappropriately to rigid beliefs and to the world? Well, your emotions, you know, it's, it's a mom moment of clarity, you know, in alcoholism and, dr and drug addiction, they describe a moment of clarity as a moment where you have woken up and see the truth of what you've created. And at that moment, you have a choice to let it go and continue. So you can say that a moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. But a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. It is a moment where we choose to accept the truth and let go of the illusion and make the choice. So for us, that's the work we do. And that's the, the way to have a moment of clarity is to accept it when it's presented before us. Look at our emotional reactions, look at our relationships, look at how where there is conflict, look at where we easily get aggravated and you'll find your domestication, you'll find your wounds, you'll find those beliefs that 
try to control your point of view. And at that moment, you have a choice. And since we are talking talking about the Toltec tradition, my favorite instrument to create a moment of clarity is the fifth agreement, to be skeptical but learn to listen, which to me is to hold back your yes, hold back your no, and listen. When we listen, we're able to reintroduce something we lost. And with that reason, we give scrutiny to what we believe, be able to question it. And of course, domestication makes us prevent us from questioning because it'll either you'll be reprimanded as a traitor or a or a sellout or whatever it is that the judgment is but in questioning it you'll find the lies and you'll be able to decipher because when you give scrutiny to everything the only thing that will survive is the truth and the truth exists like neil degrasse tyson would say the truth exists with or without you it doesn't need humanity for it to be truth but a belief only exists while you say yes to it and that's the part i learned from that line like a belief only exists while you say yes to it and as soon as you change that yes into a no it ceases to exist so that's scrutiny that be skeptical but learn to listen is a wonderful instrument that allows us to let go to have to bring forth a moment of parity that allows us to let go of that that no longer serves us, which is lies or conditions or things that brings unhappiness into our life or brings conflict with the people in our life. Now, when you're working with people, what do you find to be the most common thing preventing them from doing this internal work and, and having an open mind? There's no common. Everyone is, is unique and different. You know, you can say self-doubt could be, but that self-doubt can be to so many things, and the reasons aren't always different. So you can say that there is a constant description of what brings their unhappiness to life, but what formed it, what created, what impacted them is unique to them. So you can say the constant there is more about their unhappy. And they decided to do something about it, and they reached out, sometimes to me, sometimes to a therapist, sometimes to their priest or minister, sometimes to their best friends, sometimes to their parents, sometimes to their children, and most importantly to themselves. So I hear from everyone that has met you or your father that both of you are always deeply immersed in the present moment. How do you cultivate such presence, and how do you go about seeing each day with such fresh eyes? Well, I wake up every morning. You know, I look at what what's in front of me, the up and down, the left and right. Unconditional love is the willingness to see the whole of me. There, there's a way, there's a story that can this, right? Like there's a there's an old Cherokee story that my brother introduced to me and he used jaguars to it. I learned it through the Cherokee version that uses wolves. And apparently there is a Greek one as well. So I'll use the one I, I, I learned. <clears throat> uh, grandfather takes his grandson to... Uh, to a fire pit to teach and share the stories of their ancestors. As the night falls and the fire goes, and the grandfather says to the grandson, inside of us there live two wolves, one a, a wolf of love and compassion, the other one a wolf of hate and envy and jealousy, selfishness. Both wolves live within us. The grandchild asks, if I make them fight, which one will win? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Now, when I first heard this teaching, when Jose taught it to me, or shared it with me, my first instinct was to say, well, you feed the wolf of love and compassion and joy and all that kind of thing. But as time progressed, and I learned what unconditional love is. And unconditional love is the willingness to see the whole of you, the, the willingness to see every side of you. Then I realized I am both wolves. I am both the wolf of hate and anger and jealousy and all that kind of thing as much as I am the wolf of love and compassion. And I am both. So I decide to feed both. The difference is that I'm not going to make them fight. The war ends with me. So with that in mind, I look at everything out there. And some people still see themselves as either wolf of good or the wolf of hate. To this point, it's become conditional love even if they see themselves as the wolf of love and compassion it's still conditional love because they're not willing to see the whole so i can say that 
to me, I look at everything in life and I see that everyone is the whole. We all have our ups. We all have our downs. It's not about good or bad, right or wrong or negative. It's that we all go through different stages of our life, just like the season where here I live in Reno. We have a winter. We have a fall. We have a summer. And we have a spring. And our, our Truckee River here flows with all the season. The trees blossom and and leave uh, let go of their leaves with the season the snow comes in and covers the land and at the same time it exposes everything i can see as far as that i can see life is like that unconditional love is the willingness to see the whole of everything to see what not what i want to see that conditional love does conditional love only sees what it wants to see unconditional love is the willingness to see the whole and that is me you can say my father myself that what makes it easy is that we know we can't go back in the past and change a yes to a no or no to a yes because life no longer exists in the past. It only it only exists in our memory, in our mind, and it probably didn't happen the way we think it happened. The future doesn't exist yet. It only exists in my imagination with all the what-ifs. And there's no amount of anxiety or imagination that, that can impact the future in that way making meaning that i can go in the future 30 years from now and make a choice here now and plan how i'm going to react to this or that the only thing i can control the only place where i'm able to say yes and no is in this present moment this present moment that moves with me from the moment of my conception until the moment of my last breath but if i really go deeper from the moment of the big bang to the moment where it all comes back to the source. Mm -hmm. So what I am, who we are, what we are now, we're life. And what allows us to be present is that I'm here. My body that's engaging you right now will one day be dead. It will be an inanimate object. It could be tonight. It could be next week. It could be in a year that I pass away in this body and this mind become inanimate objects. It could be in 73 years if I live to be as old as my great-great-grandfather Don Ezekiel Macias. But right now, I'm alive in this body, in this mind. And for as long as I'm alive in this body, I am that infinite possibility, though limited by this body and my perception in contrast to the infinite of life or you can say everything. It is still an individual and unique point of view because I am in this body named Miguel Angel Ruiz Jr. And this is me. And I'm 43 years old. I may be halfway through my my life or I may not even reach, haven't even reached my midpoint in life. But who cares? I'm here. I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Let's enjoy it. Yeah, that thought of impermanence is definitely a motivator. It also is accepting death, mm -hmm. accepting our own mortality. Coming to peace with it, that's going to be different. It's going to be different every day. Sometimes you may, I might be in a plane and we get hit some turbulence and it's easy, it's easy to accept one day and the other day you have, may have the same kind of turbulence, something similar, but that you feel the panic and it's going to be different. Every day is different. That's okay. Yeah, I think there's a difference between being shook up by an event like that, like turbulence, where it's activating that fight or flight response, but you can still be the observer that doesn't change your philosophy on, on death. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess it's going to happen with whether I'm prepared or not. But being able to see myself and know the ups and downs and my point of view always changes. You know, it's just, it's going to be, it's that's what life is. You know, I can't tell you if I'm going to take something with grace or one day I'm going to be in, in such a situation where I completely lose it and get really angry and just go, Arr! Everything goes up and down, you know. As a parent, we see that, you know. So there are times where, you know, something happens and we we let it slide, and sometimes even something less, we won't. We get really angry and we give them a consequence. It's it's uh, it's all it's all unique. It's all every day is different, and that's and that's nice. So, how did the Toltecs think about death? Oh, it's you can say that's the the great equalizer, the angel of death. Is what allows us to enjoy life. It's it, it gives and it takes away. How has your relationship with death changed as you grow? It's different, you know. Right now, as a father, it uh, it, it looks different. You know, if my children were to pass away, that would impact me gravely. You know, when they were born, 
I never experienced a fear like that, like in my life, you know, like not even when I was young and I was afraid of the death of my parents, that, that wasn't nearly as, as frightening as losing my children. Something that as time progresses, I've gotten a lot better of it, but it's one of those things that life is always different. You're always processing, you're always working and sometimes two steps forward, sometimes one steps back or sometimes three steps back and one step forward. It's, it's always different. Mm-hmm. So for me, my relationship with death is, you know, it's the same as my relationship with life. Right now, I am in this body and I am alive. And for this moment, I'm going to enjoy it. So if I accept that death is coming, whether tonight or in 73 years, why waste my time worrying about a moment that's definitely coming? Let me enjoy the, mo- the, the life saying yes to me right now. Let me enjoy life saying yes to my children right now. And yes, they're going to go up and down in their, their own experience. They're going to have hard times, and they're also going to have beautiful times. That's wonderful. That's what life is. Mm-hmm. Let them experience it, just like I want to experience it myself. Yeah, so the antidote to death is presence. Yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy life right now. It's, it's not even an antidote, to be honest with you. It's acceptance. It's going to happen. We all go. There's nobody in this planet that's going to evade it. Not even this planet's going to evade it. One day it's going to happen. And physics has already showed, proven to us that one day the sun is going to expand so much that it's going to engulf this planet. That's something that's uh, in science. It's uh, You can say it's uh, proven. I'm not sure if it, to what point. But it, it is something that we've seen across the universe as, as studies have happened. But... Why worry about that moment now? Right now, the sun is in its place. Life is here. Enjoy it. It's like relationships. My relationship with my wife is going to end one day. It's going to end either by life, by choice, or by death. By life, I mean it's something we can go in different directions. And all of a sudden, like for example, my girlfriend from the university, she went back to Germany. I stayed here and we didn't never really broke up, but we went a different path. And this is life before the, the social media. So back then it was a lot tougher to do, do that. Then there's, of course, girlfriends whom we she broke up with me or I broke up with them. And it's that. And then one, one day my wife will see me close my eyes for the last time or I will see her. Here's the thing, though. Once you accept that all relationships will end, why worry about a moment that's coming? Enjoy this moment when she's saying yes to me. Mm-hmm. We're saying yes to each other. Because you're so afraid of death, then it's going to consume us and it's not going to allow us to enjoy what we have now. Right. That's why we say that death is the greatest teacher. She teaches us to be grateful for the things we have. Yeah, and if you want to avoid the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation, practice that negative visualization from time to time. Well, if, even if you, if that, even the negative stuff is, is it's helpful. It's, it's, it allows you to be grateful for what you have. You can use that negative thing to reinforce whatever insecurity you have, or you can use it to be grateful for you have. Of course, that might trigger a little bit of guilt, saying or like you know. Of like, what should I have? And they, they can't. But that's the thing. At this moment, you've been blessed with that experience, with this person, with this situation, with this opportunity. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Because it's going to go away eventually. But enjoy it while it's here. So switching gears here, family aside, who comes to mind when you consider someone that has achieved mastery? A lot of people I know. You know, the, the barista that does an incredible latte that she, she or he has become an incredible master of their craft. A police officer or a firefighter become a master of their craft and helping, being like they mastered separating an emotion in a moment that is that is traumatic for someone else and they come in and help and once they finish, they take the time to themselves to, to recover and heal themselves. That's That requires mastery. Our, our musicians, you know, like... A, Carlos Santana, he's described it as, or what's, what's it, Carlos Santana? They were saying that how you know you become a musician when you're able to play your 
musical instrument and the birds sing back to you and you're playing with a with a bird that's that's a beautiful mastery itself but it's also the master of someone who completely enjoys the moment they're doing and that's going to be everyone everyone is master of something in life they're a master of their craft they're a master of their art they're a master of themselves in different facets and different ages so to my to me by my point of view every person i see is a master and I used to be, when I was young, I used to think that only the great spiritual leaders or this person or that person. But as time progressed and what I've seen and what I've learned is that if you take people off a pedestal and you see everything in life as equal, then you'll see that every person is a master of their, their own great work of art, which is uniquely different from every single one. There are people who have mastered being a victim, being uh being they've mastered their pain they've mastered their guilt or mastered their judgment they're masters of that until they decide to change that and re reimagine something else and then they become a master of that and they become master of their joy they're, they're a master of themselves sometimes one, some an, someone interviewed me and asked me is the mastery of self to always be happy and i said no the mastery of self it's not to always be happy, it's to enjoy life as it comes, to go with the ups and downs. You know, when you've mastered these instruments that is taught to tradition, it allows you the opportunity to enjoy life when things are going good. It also allows you to use the instruments you have learned when life is going tough and you apply them to help you heal. To me, that's it. We we go through tough times in life. All of us, including myself, we go through anxiety, we go through sadness, we go through heartbreak, and that's perfectly fine. It's okay, because that's my truth. And I'm going to apply these instruments to give me the opportunity to heal, to move the story forward. And when life is in a good place, I'll enjoy it. And of course, nobody is immune to a certain heartbreak or a certain sun moment of, of that will make you gasp and impacts you in life you know yesterday my, my little daughter almost got ran over luckily for me the, the driver saw her and stopped you know last night my son got a little angry and hit me you know with his in his autism and i didn't take it personal because i know how my son is but i still give him a consequences for what he did so there it is this morning he woke up and gave me a big hug and says i love you that's nice so that's the thing Life is constantly throwing a curveball at us. It's up to us whether we allow that curveball to keep us down or are we going to let life teach us that when that happens, that we are able to get up and start all over again. Yeah, so to be a Toltec is to be an artist. The artist's life experiences will be their tool that they prefer to use and how they use them is how they express their unique selves. Yes, both you and your, your father's books are filled with actionable takeaways. In your newest book, The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships, you touch on the importance of open and honest communication. Can you give me examples of this in your personal relationships? Oh, sure, sure. Well, my wife and I, of course. Um, when we come together, we are creating a whole new culture together. That's That's the beauty. An example would be, when I was writing this book, uh, we, ha we had several workshops and classes, both Heather Ash and I together, and sometimes apart. We were all working on a process. And in one of those workshops, I, uh, I asked a young, uh, young lady to walk up to, the, up to the stage. I asked her, and she was uh, quite young, you know, that's why I said young lady, because she was like 20 years younger than I. And I asked her, what do you want out of a relationship? And she said, I want it to be stable. And I said, okay, I asked the rest of the class to write that down. Write what it means to them what she just said. And when they finished, I asked them all to read. That way, none of their answers gets, gets uh, distorted by everyone else's answers. Everyone had a totally different response, including one that says, a place where you put horses in. It's a stable, right? So I told this young lady, listen, if you tell your beloved, I want my relationship to be stable, and your beloved says yes, 
here's the real here's the thing just like everyone in this room answered something different your beloved is going to say yes to that, something different and years later is you're going to be heartbroken or angry because you think that your beloved has betrayed you or broken their promise because it wasn't what you wanted. The person built a, 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 a stable to put horses in, and you have horses now. And I thought this is what you wanted. When someone says yes, don't be afraid to ask what they mean by that. What does that mean to you? To give each other the benefit of the doubt, then you'll find each other that you're both saying yes to different things. We both have different definitions of what love is, just as much as we have different definitions of what God is or life is or in the, in the individual self or the free will or, or any of those kind of things. It's Everyone has their own unique word. Even though we're all speaking English, sometimes words have totally different definitions. There's, there are words in the United States that are innocent here in the States and not so innocent in the United Kingdom. All you have to do is just watch a, a, an Austin Powers movie, and you'll find out things that a Brit, uh, someone from uh, of a British descent, or you can say uh, speak the English of and uh, uh, from Britain, well, they will find it ghastly, and you will like, well, what you, you won't know what they're reacting to because it didn't mean the same thing. You know, there's words like shag and things like that, tiny pack and things like that. Innocent to us Americans, but not so innocent in other countries, even though they're English, even though they're spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, enunciated the same way. Two different cultures have different give it, have given it different meanings, kind of like me and my wife. I grew up in San Diego, California, and I grew up with a drink like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever as soda. I know that word. But when I went to her home in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and I, I went to the to the my first Thanksgiving with her family, which is my family now, of course. And I said, "Hey, can I have a soda?" They're like, "What? Can I have a soda? What?" And I pointed to it, and they said, "Oh, you mean pop." We all have different words to describe the same object, you know. In the East Coast, someone calls it a seltzer or a tonic or something like that, or a cola. You know, they, they refer to cola. Or uh, even when it's not a cola drink, they call it you know Sprite or Dr Pepper or, or a Crash or things like that. The ability to listen to one another, to not make the assumption that words mean the same thing to one another, allows us to find that common ground to create a whole new culture. What does that mean to you? What does that say to you? So you can say that a lot of the disagreements my wife and I have is sometimes we we trigger in each other different wounds that the words might have sounded innocent to me, but to her growing up, it may not have been so innocent, and especially if you grew up in the United Kingdom. You know, tr there's a difference between trousers and pants. It's a huge difference, you know. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that if you're aware that language is an empty symbol whose definition is subject to agreement that every word is an empty symbol then the ability to understand each other to to understand to relate to one another is understanding that the language we use even though it may be english there may be parts that mean different things so in creating something together the ability to understand each other to listen is what allows us to understand one another. And that's how we create a whole new culture together. So how do you go about listening with that non-judgmental awareness? Well, it's hard to take emotion out of it. We are emotional beings who experience the full spectrum of our emotions. Just the ability to give a benefit of doubt. Say, what does that mean to you? Very simple. What, what challenges remain as far as overcoming and being a better partner and having better communication. I basically, our communication is what is, and it's constantly evolving, it's constantly changing. You know, kind of like the image of being a parent that I described earlier. You know, the reason why we 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 keep playing it by ear is that the person we're raising is changing in front of us. The reason why when it turned two, everything we knew about being a parent of a one-year-old changes because the individual changed, the child changed. 
30 likes what they want, what they want to eat is no longer the same as as when they were infants or even a year old. It's changed and they turn four. It's dramatically different. When they turn eight, it's dramatically different. Every, every birthday makes parenting what you know about parenting relevant because you have to replay it by ear. You have to re-engage it because the, the child, the person is changing in front of your eyes, physically, emotionally, intellectually. That's what make, you can say that it's easy to spot the physical changes in our children because they're growing up in a different rate than we are. If we use Einstein's theory of relativity there, we're all growing in different things. In fact, we have friends who come and visit us and see the change and the growth in our kids that sometimes we've we've failed to see because we've been around them so much. Well, that's also true with my wife. My wife and I have also grown. Like our relationship has evolved. And the reason why it's evolved is because she is not the same person she was when we first started dating. She's not 28 years old anymore. She's not 30. She's not 35. She's no longer 40. She's constantly changing. So I'm relearning how to be in relationship with a person that's constantly evolving. Because if I still treated her as she was 28 or 30, even 40, then I'm not really in a relationship with a real person. I'm in a relationship with what I want to see. That's conditional love. The willingness to see who she is today, the woman who's doing her very best, being her age, dealing with the deal, things that she has to deal with at work, and life as a parent, as an individual, is unique to to her now. Her body has changed. Her point of view has changed. And if I get stuck and attached to an image of what she used to be, then I'm going to miss out on the person she is today. So that conversation, what it is to be a better, let go of that. Because the word better relationship, better communication, we're automatically saying that my communication right now is not good or not, it's not even present so we just say it's a, it's a it's a communication a relationship that's constantly evolving because what worked before no longer works now and what works today is not going to work in a few years why because we're two individuals who are growing up in the same rate and like i like the, the theory of relativity einstein it's hard to notice it because we're both going at the same speed Sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and when did that happen? You know, you look at yourself in the in the mirror and you're like, oh, wow. Like, if, for example, growing up, you know, there's, there comes the moment where you didn't even realize when that moment came when you were no longer really interested in going out on a Saturday night or Friday night. To be honest with you, I really don't care anymore. <laughs> I enjoy a nice, quiet home, time with my family here. And sometimes having friends over and having a conversation over a meal, my likes changed, sometimes dramatically, sometimes slowly. Being present allows me to be aware of that moment, the moment where, all right, this has changed, that has changed. So my communication with my wife is going to change as well. It may break down, it might improve, but the key to it, the thing that always motivates us is that we want to be together. My, my mama Gaia, before she passed, a few months before she passed, may she rest in peace, asked my wife, how were you guys able to handle the culture clash in your relationship? Because she and I, in some ways, come from different worlds. And my wife answered it very beautifully. She said, because we love each other. When couples come and ask me about their advice, about, about relationships, I always ask the same question. Do you guys want to stay together? If they both say yes, the rest is easy because that mutual yes is the motivator that's going to allow them to see things through. Mm -hmm. If they both say no, that's also easy because they're saying the truth and they realize that they no longer want to be together. It's complicated when someone says yes and the other one says no because you're now you're trying to convince someone else to change their point of view. That's complicated. But in a relationship where you both say yes, that motivator is the thing that's going to allow you to get through hurdles in life, get through, get through problems. But it's also the thing that allows you to create a whole new culture together and a culture that's constantly changing. And you change because you want to. You improve the communication because you want to. 
you're still interested in hearing what the other one has to say. For example, my wife comes home from work and she tells me all of the things that happened. She's not asking me to, to fix anything. All she wants is for me to hold space and listen to her. That's it. And once in a while, if, if she, it really matters to her, ask the question and see if I need, she needs help. But most of the time she doesn't. She just wants someone to share her experience of the day. Good or bad, right or wrong. That's what she wants. And that's that's nice. Yeah, and that is much more simple than trying to come up with a solution, but to just be there, hold space, and listen. The last secret to happiness in your book is release. Release from what? Is it ego? Is it the self? Or is it judgment? Let go of that projected image. My wife is no longer 28 or 30. I'm not, I'm myself not no longer 28 or 40. To release that image of what was and pay attention to the present. Who are you today? And actually listen to that answer. That's what we release. So we're, we're releasing what was. We're not thinking about what will be. It's just what is. Yep. Who am I, who am I in relationship with today? Because, for example, today my, my wife could have easily woken up and changed her point of view on something. All right, now that something is going to change the nature of our relationship. Let's play with it. And that's, that's always going to be the truth, you know. As, especially as parents, as as husband and wife, as friends, as lovers, there are things that are just kind of changes. It's constantly changing, and that's the nice thing. You get to explore each other all over again. Who are you? So release allows you to do that, to explore the new person you are in relationship, even though you've been together fifteen years. The person you're in relationship with, you've never experienced that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember, I remember my wife when she when when she has a birthday. You know, I say to her, "Well, now I'm gonna get used to being in a relationship with a with a 43 year old or 44 year old. What's what's that gonna be like?" And that's that's pretty because it's it's kind of like reminding us that all right, I've changed. Let's find out in which ways I have. Do you have any daily Toltec meditations that you'd like to share? Well, recently I've been reading on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. I've been reading my little book, um, the Li- Living a Life of Awareness. I've been reading the daily meditations. There's six months in there. There's six six months worth of med- daily meditations in there. The other one, uh, I, I I I do the rosary. You know the with uh, the, the decades and things like that in there, the, uh, our father, the Hail Mary. Then there's also the Circle of Fire prayer that my father wrote. There's all these prayers, but in all of them, the root is gratitude. I, I say them with gratitude. It's, it's different from asking. It's more about grateful for the things I have. So I say thank you for the opportunity of of helping my son. Thank you for the opportunity to helping my daughter today. Thank you for the opportunity to be there for my wife. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for this relationship I have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The gratitude is the thing that keeps us from taking things or people from gra- for granted. A gratitude that today was a good day. Today was a tough day, but you know what? I got to know something about myself. And things like that. It's, it's, you can almost say that the at the core of every prayer I give, there's a gratitude. The, the, the gratitude I have. Sometimes, of course, I pray for someone to heal, but at the same time, I know that it's in, in not in my hands, it's in life hands and God's hands. And Thy will be Thy be done. Into the into your hands I commend Thee. Mm-hmm. But. With that, I also give the gratitude for the opportunity to ask and say, thank you for giving me the strength to get through this hurdle today. So yes, at the root, that's always gratitude. Just a couple more questions for you, Miguel. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Well, back when I used to drink, because I stopped drinking three years ago, I have sleep apnea and my alcohol uh, makes my sleep apnea worse, so I stopped it. So, but... Since you did ask, ah, I would have a glass of scotch with a, a Kira Kurosawa. 
the uh, the film a Japanese filmmaker. I love his films. I love Yojimbo. I love High and Low or he Heaven and Hell. I love The Seven Samurai. I love I love the way he approached telling a story. And you know, I would have um, a glass of whiskey with him and just simply say thank you for the movies. Mm -hmm. So Akira Kurosawa. What was it about the way that he told his story? Was it the structure? The subtleness. Like he said so much with so little. And the like humanity, the humanity of its characters. Of course, you know, he, he, he created, did a lot of movies about samurai. But in that samurai, you know, the, the characters, you know, he would bring Kabuki into it and, and, and the archetypes of this, his tradition. But at the, at the very top, at the cream, you can say it's the personality, the human, the human aspect of a situation, from high throne to uh, to the red to dreams. My favorite Akira Kurosawa movie is High and Low, Heaven and Hell, which is a which is a is a detective story. You know, the first half is a story about uh, a ransom, and the second half is a detective story about how to find that 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 uh, that person and, and it's and it's, you see an arc in the tra trajectory of uh toshiro mifune and his character in the movie as well as the young man who is the who tries to uh well blackmail him so you, you see two worlds going up and down and yeah at, at one point letting go of that sacrifice you know he realizes that if he does this his whole family goes under but then realizes that the life of this other a child is was worth it but it took him a long time to get there so you can say that the imagery of him taking a shower as he's trying to make a decision is really it's really interesting it's like he's shedding out this image as he's going back and forth because he 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 is the man who created his fortune on the work of, of from the very beginning. He was uh, a shoe shine boy at the very beginnings, and 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 he made it all the way up to the top of of one of the companies. And now there's ransom, and he has to make a choice. And his wife and his kid, and like if he if he d doesn't pay and he uses it for what he wants to do, he'll he'll be able to provide for his family. But on the other side, there is a child who whose life may be in peril. So in the end, he makes a choice to uh, let go and be there for the boy. And then that, in that sacrifice, people call it sacrifice, I call it generosity, he realizes what matters in life. But it, take, it took a long toll. You know, he was willing to start completely anew. And then the second part is the 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 the, the, the detective story that it's it's kind of like two stories in in one movie. Uh, they 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 tried to recreate it. You know, it's called it's a movie called Ransom by Mel Gibson that they re tried to recreate it. But I I always thought that the original uh, uh, had a, so much heart and such a complicated complex things because you're able to relate. To the characters in some ways because he was able to bring out their humanity even though they still uh well there's still the stereotypes they make uh for the culture that uh he is creating akira kurosawa awesome so last question for you what are your daily non-negotiables things that no matter what will always be done my kids food <laughs> food <laughs> yeah 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 my my kids fed my our dogs fed you know it's it's uh it's still the most important thing food mm -hmm. everything else is like you can be with or without but food is essential so tell me about the two major events that you have coming up this year the circle of fire and dawn of a new dream well, that's the, both events are family events. Uh, my father, Don Miguel Ruiz, my brother, Don Jose Luis Ruiz, us will be doing this workshop in uh, one in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at Circle of Fire. That's an old ceremony my dad used to do back when he had apprentices that we decided to do and restart again. 
and start uh, of a new dream and, and New Year's Eve. That's a kind of a, our signature event in our family. It's, it's going through a New Year's Eve celebration, but we, we, we've joined it up with a power journey through Teotihuacan and do the power journey and work there. So it'll be fun. They're both unique, both different mm-hmm. to a certain degree, of course. The teachers are are, are, are the same, so there's just going to be um, some um, in between the two of them. Different styles. Jose has his unique style. My dad has his own style, and I have my own. So you'll see three people who are doing the best with what they've got. And we haven't been to New Mexico in a long, long time, so that'll be nice to be back in New Mexico. Uh, we used to live there briefly in, from 1989 to about 1994, on and off. And uh, it's nice. It's a nice to go back to... And then Teotihuacan, we've been going there since I was since I was 14 years old, so that's also nice. Yeah, and if people want to learn more about that, they can go to miguelruez.com slash events. Is there anywhere else that people should go if they want to learn more about you and, and what you do? Yeah, well, my, my own personal website, miguelruizjr.com, and miguelruizjr.com, that's my own personal website. But, of course, you'll find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and all that, but our home base is our website. Great. Any parting words for my listeners? Enjoy everything you do. Enjoy life. From my point of view, that's the whole point of all the work we do, to enjoy life, enjoy being yourself, and have fun. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the conversation, Miguel. Thank you for all of your insight and all of your work. Uh, It's really been a privilege speaking with you. Nick, thank you so much for the opportunity. I hope you have a wonderful time, and, and I wish you the continued success of not just your podcast, but with your coaching and everything you're doing in life. Thank you, sir. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. We'll do. Looking forward to it. It'll be fun. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review, following me on social media at Prime Philosophy, and just by spreading the word. Shakova.